We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Philippians. Meets this one particular lady, Lydia. She is a dealer of purple cloth. She's from Thyatira. She gets saved. She's a worshiper of God, but she doesn't understand about Jesus. There are a lot of people in our world who know about God, even love God, but they don't know about Jesus. And Jesus is the key element to understanding salvation. God is not to be some impersonable, unknowable being. He is to be a relational creator in our lives who is our Father and our Lord. When Paul met Lydia in Philippi, she was aware of God, but she didn't know Him. That's what matters. There have been many people throughout history who have studied and understood religion and even memorized the whole of Scripture while never really knowing God. Experiencing that relationship is where you'll find salvation and fullness. Your soul will feel incomplete and empty until you find that personal, intimate connection with the God who created and redeems you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Philippians chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's take our Bibles and go to Philippians chapter 2. And just as a reminder to the context of our letter here, Philippi was an ancient city in Macedonia, which is on a map today, modern Greece. Paul travels there to Philippi, to this ancient city, during his second missionary journey, somewhere around the years 50 to 53 A.D., And as we talked about last week, Acts chapter 16 records the details of Paul's visit there to Philippi. He went there because of a vision that God gave him of a Macedonian man who was calling out to Paul in this vision or dream, come over to Macedonia and help us. And this would be the first time that the gospel would actually move from Asia Minor to Europe. And the gospel now is going to come to Greece and and to Europe. And when Paul gets to Philippi, Acts 16, again, as a reminder of the story, when he gets there to Philippi, there's not a Jewish presence. The entire population of Philippi in the first century was about 10 to 15,000 people. And it was almost entirely, if not entirely, a Gentile population. The reason we know this is because there was not a synagogue in the ancient town of Philippi. A synagogue would be erected if there were at least 10 Jewish men in any town or city. The fact that there was no synagogue meant there weren't even 10 Jewish men. 
So when, when Paul gets there, he goes down to the river as a place of prayer since there's no synagogue for him to go to to pray. And when he's down there at the synagogue, he encounters some women who are down gathering fresh water or doing laundry or socializing for the day. He meets this one particular lady, Lydia. She is a dealer of purple cloth. She's from Thyatira. She gets saved. She's a worshiper of God, but she doesn't understand about Jesus. There are a lot of people in our world who know about God, even love God, but they don't know about Jesus. And Jesus is the key element to understanding salvation. God is not to be some impersonable, unknowable being. He is to be a relational creator in our lives who is our Father and our Lord. Mahatma Gandhi said that God is that indefinable something that we all feel but which we cannot know. But Gandhi was wrong. He is a very personal God, and he invites us to have relationship with him through his son Jesus. And through Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven. We can know God personally. You, know, you no longer have to go through a person, okay? You go directly to the Father through Jesus. Bypass me, please. I know those of you with Catholic backgrounds, every once in a while, somebody will call me Father Gary. Please do not call me Father Gary. Because you have a Father in heaven, and you have one intermediary between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And so we go directly to Father through Christ, so we can actually have a personal relationship with God. He is knowable. He is personable. And so uh, Lydia was, was that kind of a person who represents a multitude of people in our world today, which is all the more reason why it's imperative among us to share the gospel, tell people about Jesus, that they can know God in a personal way, not just some theoretical, theological being. So Lydia received Christ into her heart, put her faith in Jesus, responded to the gospel message. In addition, Paul casts a demon out of this girl. She also gets delivered and saved. In addition, Paul ends up in jail, and the Roman jailer, uh, he gets saved, as well as, it doesn't say specifically in Scripture, but I suspect some of the some of the prisoners, too, in in the jail where Paul and Silas were kept there in Acts chapter 16. So that's the nucleus of the beginning of the church at Philippi. The core members, a lady who worked at Joanne Fabrics, a demon-delivered diva, the jailer there, the warden, and a few ex-cons. That makes up the church. And Paul now is writing about 10 years later to this church that now has thrived. After 10 years... The church at Philippi is thriving. Paul is thriving in a different way. Most of us wouldn't see it as thriving, but Paul did. He was in prison in Rome at the time. He talks about how it was necessary in chapter 1 of Philippians that he was imprisoned for the sake of the palace guard. God sometimes has interesting providential appointments for us, doesn't he? In Paul's life, it was prison, which on its face might look like that's a terrible place to be. But to Paul, he realized, you know what? I've been wrongly accused of something, but I'm in prison, and, and I believe I'm in prison because God has me on assignment here to preach the good news to the, to the palace guard. And so God has us where he has us sometimes, friends, because he wants to use us right where we're planted. Don't be too quick to, to leave, no matter how inconvenient or uncomfortable your situation might be. Sometimes God has you right where he has you because there's somebody who needs to know about Christ through you. Well, here in chapter 2, Paul is going to 
deal with the subject of humility because, as we mentioned last week, there are three main themes to his writing of the letter here to the Philippians, and the three major themes are, number one, it's a thank you letter for their support and an update on his condition because he's in prison in Rome. Number two, it's a warning about false teachers. And number three, he writes this letter as a pleading for unity. And it'll be that third point that he is going to emphasize here in chapter two. He's going to plead for some unity here in the church at Philippi. I suppose he's gotten word that there's some infighting and there's some disagreements. And, you know, not all disagreement is wrong, but if it gets to the point of being divisive in the body of Christ, then you got a problem. And Paul is writing to the church of Philippi among the different things he tells them is, you guys, you guys have to have some unity among yourselves. You got to put aside your differences, your disagreements, your divisions, and you're going to have to really seek the Lord and get unified as a church. And what he's going to end up saying to them is that the right attitude in, in having unity in the church is going to come because you follow the example of Jesus. Because the example of Jesus in his humility is unmatched. So if you really want to be humble in life, and if you really want to understand what humility is all about, look at the example of Jesus. He'll say here, chapter 2, look at verse 5. He'll say here, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. King James says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. He said, you're going to have to have this mindset. You're going to have to have this attitude about Christ because when you get his attitude and his mind down, then you're going to be humble and humility is what will contribute to unity. But you're going to have to start with humility. Now, this is interesting because Paul is not going to take them through the seven-step approach to how you gain unity in the church. It's going to be a one-step course. And a one-step course is you're going to learn humility by following the example of Jesus. And when you can learn humility by looking at Jesus, you're going to have unity. Okay, now this is true for the church. This is true for any environment you find yourself in. In a marriage, you know why often there is disunity in a marriage? It's because one or both don't have the humility of Jesus. You know, it, it's interesting. Have you noticed if you're married, have you noticed how marriage, and then I'll add this, if you're also a parent, when you become a parent, so at different levels of your life, when you first get married and then when you also have kids, doesn't it expose some selfishness in your life? Come on, everybody's looking at me like you're judging me. Look, I'm talking, it's true in, in all of our lives. You get married and you begin to realize, oh, there's some selfishness in my life I got to deal with. You start to have kids and you realize, oh, there's some selfishness I have in my life I got to deal with. And, and God begins to use those things. Well, listen, the truth is that what goes around in the church is also true for your marriage. It's true for your family. It's true for where you work. I mean, if people will just, not necessarily where you work if they're not a believer because they're not going to operate by the same principles you do, but if they are believers, if everybody would just at least work on becoming humble like Jesus and following his example, man, you're going to have a lot more peace and unity and love and harmony in your home, in your workplace, in the church. All right, so, so we'll get to verse 5, but let's first back up here and, and look at, at uh, verse 1 and start here at chapter 2, verse 1. So, so Paul says here, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and these are all like rhetorical things he's saying here, so of course they have encouragement from being united with Christ. If you have any comfort from his love, and they're reading this, you know, and they're like, of course we have comfort from his love. 
He says, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, that word fellowship there is koinonia. If you have any, any you know, harmony there and any, any um, fellowship with the Spirit, of course we have some fellowship with the Spirit. If you have any tenderness and compassion, yeah, we got that. Then he says in verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So he's writing to them, it's like a spiritual dad, and he says, look, make my joy complete. You'll make me happy if you would just have some like-mindedness among yourselves, having the same love, that word love is the Greek word agape. Remember, there are different kinds of love in the Greek language, eros, phileo, Storge and you have agape. Agape here is the highest form of love because it's the highest form that can only really be appreciated as you know the Lord. And so he says here, have that kind of love. Have the, have the kind of Jesus love in your church and in your heart and in your life. Being one in spirit and purpose. He says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Now notice he adds the word selfish because not all ambition is wrong. There's plenty of good ambition, but he's talking about the the, the kind of ambition that is bad is selfish ambition. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, there's the key word, consider others better than yourselves. Consider others better than yourselves. Look, a lot of the Bible is very counterintuitive, isn't it? And and the culture is going to really kind of teach us it's all about you. It's all about your personal advancement. It's all about your personal desires, your personal wishes, your personal promotion. It's all about you. And the Bible comes along and says, it's not all about you. It's about the Lord and it's about others. You're kind of last. So it's about Jesus, others, and you. Somebody said that's the definition of joy. That's the acronym. Jesus, others, you. You really want to have joy? And that's the key word here. The word joy or rejoice, some form of the word joy or rejoice 14 times in these four chapters. So this is a strong theme here in this book. And real joy comes from Jesus first, others next, you last. The world doesn't teach it that way. The Bible doesn't know anything when I say know anything in terms of it it, it doesn't talk about anything related to self-confidence. It, it, it always talks about others and, and that the way that you really achieve self-confidence is when you're more concerned about others than you are yourself. Because if everybody would be doing that, then we wouldn't have any need to go inward and try to you know, gain our own self-confidence or work on our own self-image. Our, our culture is so wired about self. It is ridiculous. And, and, and we feed on it. We love it. And, I, you know, look, I, I, I've harped on this before, and it, you'll hear me say it every once in a while. I, I, think, I think, you know, social media has some wonderful ways of connecting people and, and, you know, the Internet in general. There's obviously a very dark side to all of that, but there's also a very wonderful side to all of that. So I'm not trying to throw the baby out of the bathwater. But if, if, if you have an ounce of, you know, reality... There are some things related to social media that is very self-driven. I mean, 
A lot of that is, look at what I'm doing, look at what I'm eating, look at what I'm buying, look at where I am. The whole thing even of selfies, look, even the word selfie, ah, you know, it's all about self. And, and what I chuckle about is, I think to myself, does anybody really care as much as you think we do? Because we don't. Anyway, I digress. But it's related because we're to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And so again, while I don't think there's anything wrong with social media by itself, I think it can lend itself to selfish tendencies if we're not careful. And we think the world all revolves around me, and we think the world's all interested in what I'm up to, and it's all about me, and the Bible teaches us otherwise. Consider others better than yourselves. He says in verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now we get here between verses 5 and 11 to this section about the attitude being the same as that of Christ Jesus. For you note takers, verses 5 through 11 is traditionally considered to be an early church hymn. That this is indented in your Bibles because it is a text that it is believed by uh, Bible scholars that this particular passage that Paul is writing here was also sung as a, a, a hymn of the early church to be a reminder to the early church about some important theological truths related to Christ. Because what you're going to find here between verses 5 and 11 is a very detailed description of what we call the incarnation. Now that's just a $3 word that basically means when God came to earth and took on flesh and, and took on the form of humanity, not losing his divinity, but folding his divinity into humanity, and thus Jesus comes onto the world scene here, and that is the incarnation. And this passage here is a detailed description of the incarnation. Allow me to kind of talk about church history here at this point. Why is this passage particularly important that we're about to look at together? I'll tell you why. The first four centuries of the early church, the church spent a lot of time debating and discussing and even advancing heresies related to the identity of Jesus. For the first four centuries, there was a lot of debate, discussion, and even erroneous heretical thought about Jesus. So one of the uh, thoughts was that Jesus was only a man and they denied his divinity. And that is uh, referred to as Unitarianism. And by the way, this is not just reserved for the first four centuries of church history, you will still find these heresies believed today. That there is this thought, and Unitarianism is the thought, that Jesus was only a man, that he was not God. He was a pretty powerful man. He did miraculous things, but that he was not God. And so Unitarianism denies the divinity of Jesus and believes that he was only a man. Then there's the opposite extreme to that, uh, something called uh, docetism, 
And docetism is the teaching that Jesus was only God. And, and they denied his humanity, uh, that he only had a phantom body, that he wasn't a body of flesh, but that it was just this uh, kind of illusion because he was only God and not, not human. Okay, that's, that's again referred to as docetism. Now, if you, for those of you who like these kind of things, uh, Gnosticism is another word that very closely related to docetism, and they also believe that Jesus did not have a real physical body of flesh. And then there was this other kind of a hybrid view that Jesus was not both God and man, and they denied the integration of both natures, that he was fully God and fully man. They denied that, and so that's a, uh, a, a heresy called Arianism. And by the way, Arianism is the father of modern Jehovah's Witness and um, Mormonism, because that's what Jehovah's Witness and Mormons believe about Jesus, that he was not fully God, not fully man, that he was a powerful supreme being, but that they deny his divinity and his humanity. So when you, when you have, you know, some guys in white shirts and black pants riding a bicycle knocking on your door and you talk to them about Jesus, they'll talk to you about Jesus. They, they will talk to you about Jesus. But you just need to know that their Jesus is a different Jesus from the Jesus that the Bible presents. Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, but they do not believe that he is God in flesh. They do not believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. They deny the integration. Same thing is true for Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus, according to Jehovah's Witness, is the archangel Michael. And so they believe he was an angelic being who, who took on form, but they deny that he was God and man completely integrated. And Arianism is the father of modern Jehovah's Witness thought and uh, practice and Mormonism thought and practice. So again, you have Unitarianism even today in, in some circles. You have Docetism today in some circles. You have uh, Arianism in some circles today. It wasn't until the 5th century A.D., at the, count, at the uh, Council of uh, Chalcedon, which is in ancient Asia Minor, which is in modern Turkey, if you look at a map, around the 5th century AD, that the early church fathers got together, and they settled this once and for all, and they wrote out a rather lengthy statement, which I'm not going to read. I don't want to get your theological underwear in a knot, but I can tell you that it, it's rather, it's wordy, but it is clear about who Jesus is. I'll instead quote for you from the 20th century, uh, Graham Kendrick, who is a singer-songwriter, who kind of brought a summary to the Council of Chalcedon when he wrote this about Jesus, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. See, this is what Paul is going to write about here, that Jesus is God in flesh, that he is the integration of both divinity and humanity. Now, this is a, a difficult, somewhat difficult concept for us to grasp. How is he both fully God and fully man? This is what the Bible teaches, and this is how Jesus presents himself, and this is how Scripture presents him. Uh, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said to his disciples, I and the Father are one. 
I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. That Greek word one is hen, H-E-N, spelled just like a female chicken. And that word means one in essence and nature. So even Jesus makes the statement in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one in essence and nature. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection, as Pastor Gary Hamrick teaches through the book of Philippians. If you're interested in hearing this message again or others like it, feel free to visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app so you can have these teachings with you on the go. This is a great way to keep up with Pastor Gary's studies and to have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Once there, simply look under the Teachings tab. You can also learn more about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be excited to meet you if you're in the area. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other information on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We trust you've been encouraged by today's teaching from the book of Philippians. Keep reading on your own to discover many other inspiring and motivating things that apply to you today. We look forward to you joining us on our next edition of Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know